Well, welcome everybody. Thanks for being here this weekend at Grace. Welcome everybody watch online. Hope you're having a great vacation. Uh, but thanks for joining us too. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeff. If I haven't met you, uh, I've been traveling quite a bit this summer. Um, you guys, some of you may or may not know, Grace is a part of an international network of churches called the Caris Fellowship. Uh, so we actually have churches all over the world. And uh, this church, Grace Church of Greater Akron, is the largest Caris Fellowship church in the world. And so you guys, uh, in the summertime, you loan us out a lot. And so we'll go and uh, train other pastors and encourage our missionaries and uh, work on some networking things, those kind of things to kind of help the whole Caris Fellowship movement go. And a lot of what we're doing, it's, it's actually a lot of fun, is we're exporting the, the kind of the DNA, the vision, the value of Grace Church, and it's actually kind of moving globally now, which is, which is a lot of fun. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, but I'm home. Most of us are home and home to stay for a while. And it's fun to travel, but it's fun to be home and fun to be with you guys. So good, good to be here. Uh, we're finishing up a series uh, this weekend called Most Interesting Man in the World. And this series uh, we've really just been moving through the book of John, taking a deep dive at the life of Jesus. And the book of John is a, is a great place to do that. So <clears throat> we know that the apostle John was Jesus's best friend. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and said, uh, I want you to take care of my mother, Mary. So he said, Mary, this is now your son. John, this is now your your mother, and so that's how close they were. Like Jesus would have entrusted his mom to John's care. Uh, John is unique too. Of all the disciples, uh, he's the only one that lived a full life. Uh, so of the 12, Judas took his own life after he betrayed Jesus, and then uh, of the other 10, of the 11 that were remaining, 10 of them died a martyr's death. They were beheaded or thrown off a cliff or crucified upside down, all these different ways that they were, they were, their lives were taken from them, by the way, because they would not recant their, their claim that Jesus rose again from the dead. So John was persecuted, but he wound up on an island, and uh, he had to live out the rest of his life on an island, and he lived to be an old man. So he wrote his gospel, the Holy Spirit inspired him to do that, through that perspective of kind of, a, kind of an old man looking back on, on the, the life of Jesus, as well as kind of in the context of the birth of the church in the book of Acts, and he was the only disciple that was able to do that. So it's real fascinating to, to dig into his thinking, his perspective, his take on Jesus, and uh, we've been doing that. In fact, I encourage you guys, if you're trying to get your head around kind of Jesus or into the Bible or maybe even helping a friend do that, uh, this series is a great one to uh, get on the website or use the app get your Bible out and kind of go through it kind of blow by blow. It, it turns into a great Bible study uh, if you want to do that. <clears throat> and it will, um, it'll let you take that deep dive and get to know Jesus in, in, a, in a, a deeper way. So as we wrap this up um, this weekend, we've, we've been looking at why John wrote this book. And that's one of the other unique things about him is he tells us why. He actually speaks to us directly through the pages of scripture, and he, he gives his reasoning. He says this in John chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he writes that out specifically. He says that the things that the Holy Spirit inspired me to write down have a, have a unique reasoning behind them. And the reason is, so you can get your head and your heart around who Jesus is, <clears throat> not just the wonder of him, and not just the idea that he loves you and wants to pour into your life, but you can specifically come to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you will kind of take this evidence and by faith believe it, by believing you can have life, you can have salvation in his name. So he walks us through that, and we've been journeying through it, and we're going to get to the end of the, the book. And we've been looking at the different miracles of Jesus along the way, right? So he turned water into wine, he fed the 5,000, he walked on the water, he raised Lazarus from the dead, all those kind of things. And this weekend, we're going to look at Jesus' greatest miracle, the strongest argument 
for the idea that he's not just a teacher and not just a moral leader, but actually God himself. Look at his deity. And Jesus' most predominant miracle, his most inarguable miracle, his greatest miracle is his resurrection from the dead. Uh, Jesus says, it's by my own will that I laid my life down and by my own power or authority that I'll take it back up again. And Jesus is resurrecting himself as part of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is God, and resurrecting himself from the dead is the greatest evidence that he really is a God that we should know and worship. So in John chapter 20, we kind of pick up the, the story there, and this is what has happened so far. So John chapter 20, Jesus has been crucified already, right? So about a week before uh, what we're going to learn about today, uh, Jesus would have entered Jerusalem week 10 days ago through what we call the triumphal entry. So he's just, he walks into Jerusalem and he's all rock star all the time. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Thousands are out there. They're wanting him to be the reestablished king of Israel. And so they're chanting for him and cheering for him. In that time frame, then, you have the Last Supper or the First Communion. You have the Garden of Gethsemane. You have Judas's betrayal. You have Jesus taken to Caiaphas and, and to Pilate to be falsely tried and then turned over to be unjustly executed on the cross. Jesus is beaten. He suffers. He carries his cross. The, the spikes, the railroad spikes is how we would think of them, are driven through his wrist and his feet. The Roman soldier punctures his side with his lance. Blood and water flows. All of that has happened. And Jesus dies. And when he dies, all the supernatural events around his death happen. Uh, darkness covers the earth. The veil is torn in the temple. Saints of old are resurrected from the dead. There's a great earthquake. All of that happens. And then a guy named Joseph of Arimathea goes to the authorities and says, let me take his body down so he's not up there on the Sabbath. So Joseph and a few of his friends go. They get Jesus's dead body off of the cross. They take his body and they wrap it in linen cloth, kind of like, kind of like a mummy kind of a thing, but they would have just wrapped his whole body up like that. Then they went and placed his body in a rich man's tomb that had never been used, thus fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And they left it there overnight. In John chapter 20, verse 1 then, some ladies, a couple ladies named Mary and some other ladies, not Jesus' mother, some of Jesus' friends and followers, come to the tomb, and what they're going to do is wrap his body, kind of pack it with spices. So in the ancient world, you didn't embalm. What, what you did was you left a body, and kind of nature took its course, and to offset the stench of decay, they would pack the body with really, really strong spices, and they would roll the stone in front of the tomb, kind of this like two-ton rock kind of thing, and seal it up there. And as the body decayed, you kind of smell these spices instead of the smell of death. And so they're on their way to do that in verse 1 of chapter 20 of John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene and some others went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's actually the disciple John. He just calls himself that here in this passage. The other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And they said this. They said, they, ha they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Mary and these other ladies go to the tomb. The stone is rolled away, and their conclusion is somebody stole his body. So they run up to, we call it the upper room. The disciples are there in the upper room. Remember, they were rock stars 10 days ago, and now they're borderline fugitives, so they're hiding, praying, locked up. She knocks on the door with the secret knock. They open it, and she tells Simon and John, hey, they stole his body. We were just there. It's empty. We, I don't know what they did with his body. John and Peter then take off verse 3, chapter 20. Peter, so Peter and the other disciple, which is John started for the tomb, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, which I just think is hilarious that John is writing the book and he makes a point to say, and I, I smoked Peter uh, the whole way there, which is probably exactly what I would write down if I was writing the book, right? So John got there first, uh, verse 5. 
John bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So they see that the tomb is empty as well. What happens then is Peter and John go back to the upper room then, right? So they go back, and they're going to tell the other disciples, hey, what the girls said was true, like his body is missing. They take off back to the upper room, and they leave Mary there by herself at the tomb. Verse 12, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? By the way, just to pause, the term woman in the ancient world was not a patronizing term. It was an endearing term. So it's like saying ma'am or miss or mother, why are you crying? So they weren't like woman, right? They're being kind to her. They see her grief. Ma'am, miss, mother, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said this. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll go get him. She's looking, saying, listen, I, I don't know. I don't know if the Romans took him. I don't know if the Jewish leaders took him. I don't know if you took him. But I, I want his body. We want his body back, right? So I, I, don't, I don't even, you know, I don't even want to know no questions asked, just tell me where he is and I will go get him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, and when he said her name, she recognized him because the sheep always recognize the voice of the shepherd. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, she told them. And she told them the things that he had said to her. She runs back to the upper room after interacting with Jesus, tells the guys, listen, I've seen Jesus. He's alive. Not his spirit. He's not a ghost. Not his philosophy. He's not a worldview. Not the idealism of him. He's not a concept. I have seen him physically alive. And then Jesus goes to the upper room where the disciples are, one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible. They're locked behind this door. Jesus walks through the door without unlocking it, just kind of walks through the door because his body uh, was still in his glorified state. So he walks through the door and he goes, peace be with you, which I just think is funny. He's like, boo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm up. <laughs> you know, so he, he, he walks in there and freaks them out. And then several things happen in that upper room the disciples look at this resurrected Jesus. Only 10 of the 11 are there. Thomas isn't there. So the other 10 are there, but Thomas isn't there. So he does several things. He breathes out the Holy Spirit onto those 10. It's the first time they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He gives kind of version 1.0 of the Great Commission. He says, I'm sending you now. And then he'll clarify that later on, right? That he leaves, he eats with them, dines with them. He leaves. Thomas comes back. They're like, you're not going to believe what happened. He doesn't. He kind of is like, I, I can't hardly believe it. So a week later, then Jesus comes back. He interacts with Thomas. Thomas is like, is that really you? Or are you a ghost? He's like, no, it's me. He goes, here, put, put, your, put your, your fingers in, in the holes on my wrist. Like you can see where my hands were pierced. And, and put your hand in my side where the lance went in. Like it's me. And it's at that point that Thomas believed in the resurrected Jesus. Jesus then went on. He does a bunch of stuff. He trains his disciples. He restores Peter to kind of close fellowship. He gives the great commission and he ascends into heaven. And during that time, he sees 500 people physically, people who have seen him die and then saw him raised again from the dead. I like to say that if we went to court today, and claim something supernatural or something weird and freaky, if we walked in with 500 eyewitnesses, 
They said, no, we saw him die, and then we saw him. We would win that court case today, right? Jesus rose again from the dead, no question about it. Physically, bodily is the way that we say it in theological terms. He is his bodily resurrection. He physically rose again from the dead. He, he was dead physically, then he was alive physically, and he's alive and well today sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is huge. The resurrection is huge. Christianity is weird, and it's unique from other major world religions because of this. Of the major religions, Christianity is the only religion that believes our founders alive. We're the only one. So like Muslims, they don't, they don't claim that. They, they would say, you know, there's, there's God, and he's kind of Allah, he's kind of up there. But it's Muhammad that we really listen to, and we follow Muhammad's writings, not the, per we don't worship Muhammad. We follow his writings, but he's dead. Buddhists, they don't believe Buddha's alive. I mean, just his cholesterol issues alone, right? So they, they don't believe that Buddha's alive. So they, they would follow like his teachings, his insight, but they, no, they don't believe he's alive, right? The Hindu gods, you can go on and on and on. They, even the, the, the Jewish people, they, they may follow Moses. They don't think Moses is alive. I mean, kind of spiritually, but not physically. They don't think that, right? But Christians are unique. We, we don't just follow the teachings of our founder or the principles of our founder. We worship our founder because we believe he's alive. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And we would look and say, that's what Christianity is based on. At the very, very foundation of Christianity, what you find in our beliefs is that we would trace the foundation of Christianity and the credibility of Christianity or the Christian thought or philosophy or what we call an ethic. We would trace all that back to an event. So we would look and say, the Bible is hugely important. The reason that we believe the Bible is the word of God is because Jesus did. Jesus talked and taught the Old Testament. He's the focal point of the New Testament, and the prophets explained him, and the apostles explained him in the New Testament. So we believe the Bible holds credibility because Jesus taught the Bible holds credibility. We don't worship the Bible. We worship Christ, the God of the Bible. Same thing with the church. The reason that we do church the way that we do it and the reason, like even Grace Church, the reason we plant other churches, you know, the reason we keep making campuses and church plants, stuff like that, is because Jesus told us to. We don't worship the church. Now, we don't, we don't think that, that, like, I am the, the head of the church. We think Jesus is the head of the church. And the only, the only thing that I do is, or Ryan or whoever's teaching, if we try to tell you what Jesus said, if, if it's ever what Jeff said, you should leave the church. I just became a cult leader. I've tried it. So there's no money in it, right? So, right? So we, it's, we, don't, we don't look at that. We're like, no, 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 no. It's all Christ. The reason we do the church is because Christ established the church. So we do what our leader who's alive and well, we do what he did because of the resurrection. That's why we trust it, right? Theology and doctrine, same thing. If it's not correctly explaining the scriptures, you should, you should ignore that. If it's not in the book, Right, because we don't we don't believe that the doctrine of the church is paramount. We believe that the teachings of Jesus Christ is paramount. Why? Because they have authority. Why do they have authority? Because our founder isn't dead. He rose again from the dead. And if you pull the resurrection out of Christian thought, philosophy, and ethic, it negates all of that, and it should be ignored. Now, here's what's funny. The greatest uh, uh, Christian apologist or defender or explainer that ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And he said the exact same thing. He said, if you pull the resurrection out, you should ignore everything else. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then what are we doing? It's, it's all kind of dumb, right? What, what a crazy thing. We believe some guy was born of a virgin and then rose again from the dead. He didn't raise again from the dead, then it's all ridiculous. That he performed all these miracles. You should trust him with your soul. It's all ridiculous if there's no resurrection from the dead. It's Apostle Paul. Our preaching is used to so is your faith. More than that, 
We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Not only, not only is it a waste and useless, but we're... Every preacher, missionary, pastor, theologian is like a joke. Because we're walking around saying, yeah, he raised again from the dead. Well, if he didn't, then we're, we're lying to you. You are being manipulated by organized religion to get your money if there's no resurrection. We're false witnesses about it. It's core to it all. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not Raised For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. All this religious activity is what the church becomes, religious activity. And it's futile and you're, you're going to go to hell anyways. You're still in your sin. Because you can't be good enough to be perfect, which is the requirement to get into heaven. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, he didn't defeat sin. So you're out of luck, right? You're still lost in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, right? So everybody who you love who's died in Christ and you believe in heaven... Is it they're in heaven now? They're not in heaven if Jesus wasn't raised again from the dead. Because if Christ can't defeat his own death, he can't defeat ours. So they're lost. They're in hell or they're ceased to exist or they've been reincarnated as a cat or something horrible like that. Like, like, there's no hope of heaven if there's no resurrection, right? And then he says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in this life, Jesus is just a way to improve your life, if in this life, if Jesus' goal is to give you your best life now, just to make you a better person, to be a moral example, Paul says, well, we, then we're, we should be pitied. What a, what a dumb thing. What kind of old-fashioned, backward, uneducated, unenlightened people would we be if I'm trying to get life direction from some dead guy instead of defining and directing my own life? What, what would make his life greater than my life? Only the resurrection would do that, right? So it's the foundation of everything. And as a Christian, we, we would teach this. I wrote it in my notes. As Christians, we proclaim the resurrection while recognizing that we need one. In the Christian faith, we would look and say, right, we believe that the Son of God laid his own life down. And by his own authority as God, he took it back up again. The, the creator of the heavens and earth, the one who created the law of life and the law of time and the law of death, exempted himself from all the above and overcame natural law because he is a supernatural person. He's God and raised himself again from the dead. And we would teach that that happened. And then we would say, and that's what I need in my life. I am dead in my sin and dead in my trespasses. And I need the same resurrection that Jesus illustrated. I need to be resurrected. I don't need to be improved as a dead person. I don't need to be cleaned up as a dead person. I don't need to have an attractive corpse on display. I need resurrected as a dead person. And only the God of the resurrection could possibly do that. So as a Christian, we would proclaim the resurrection of Jesus and look and say, and that's what I need. I need God to interact with me that way as well. So the resurrection's everything. It's not, it's not like a little kind of part of the story that we tap onto in the spring, you know, Easter time. It's everything for our life, for our hope, for our victory. It's everything that we would hold to and lock onto. Now I want to talk about this for a minute, okay? So when you think about the truth of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I, I wanna I wanna share an observation with you, and then like maybe a little bit of a fear of how we interact with that truth. Okay, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I found is this: when I think of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have found that almost no one will re- refuse to accept two out of the three of those things. I have yet to bump into a person on the planet who will not accept two out of the three of those things, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have not met anyone yet who denies the death of Jesus Christ. If you are the the least bit, like a millimeter, if you have a, a millimeter of intellectual honesty, no one who has just a little bit of intellectual honesty will deny that Jesus Christ lived on planet Earth. Nobody denies that. The, the history is overwhelming. That around 2,000 years ago, there was a guy named Jesus the Christ who lived in, in Israel and around Jerusalem and kind of the southern part of Israel, who lived there and he lived. That The history is overwhelming Everybody agrees with that. Nobody would deny it, right? Uh, I spent a chunk of the summer in the Middle East, and so we're hanging out with people who aren't like us, don't think like us, and they're Muslim or they're Jewish or they're whatever. By the way, wonderful people, warm people, generous people, fun people, just a blast to hang out with them. And so you start getting to know them and inevitably what you do for a living comes up, right? And then it comes to me and like sooner or later, I have to like admit that I'm a pastor because you can kind of like lie about it for a bit and then you're like, I'm crossing a line here. So so you say you're a pastor, right? Because it comes up. And so you're a pastor and when you use the word pastor, most people equate that, the word pastor with the Christian tradition. We're the ones that kind of use that term instead of imam or whatever, like we would use the word pastor. And so they would say, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. So you believe in the Bible, right? Yeah, I believe in the Bible. So you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. They would all say, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. We think he's great. I mean, we didn't meet one person on our trip that thought Jesus was a jerk, not one. And we didn't hang out with Christians the whole time, right? Even in Islam, Jesus is one of the three great prophets. There's Jesus, Moses, and and Muhammad. They would totally believe in Jesus. Uh, Jewish people, unless unless you're kind of way down the the spectrum of orthodoxy, you you would appreciate Jesus, his moral example, his character, the integrity of his belief. Nobody, if I, if I looked at you and said, Jesus died, and he died for what he believed in, nobody would argue that. And he was buried. Nobody would argue that because generally you bury dead people, right? So it's like, yeah, gotcha. Makes sense. All the history, they probably put him in a tomb. Yeah. You know what? They didn't just put him in any tomb. They put him in the unused tomb of a wealthy man. Okay. The Old Testament talked about it. Yeah, I know that passage too. All right. Nobody denies or argues with the death of Jesus. And this would be my fear. I I would say that in this room and under the sound of my voice right now, there's probably nobody that's listening to me right now that argues with that either. If you got up and came to church or tuned it in on the internet and you were listening to a Christian preacher at a Christian church talk about the Christian Bible, then generally you're probably in agreement that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus was buried. Because the idea of a dead Jesus is a wonderful idea. When a good person dies, especially when they die for what they believe in, and especially when they die with the belief that they are giving their life for someone else, that's a wonderful thing. And when that person, a person like that dies, what we do is we will, we will memorialize their death and romanticize their life and their impact on us. So when, when, a, when a firefighter goes into a burning building to rescue somebody and, 
he gives his life or she gives her life in that act. We, we, will, we will romanticize that process. Man, they just were given their life for what they believed in. And then we will memorialize their death. Their name will be on a, a wall somewhere. We'll have a very large funeral for them. By the way, rightly so. Nothing wrong with this. It's just what we would do because they, they gave their life for someone else doing what they believed in. If a police officer lost their life in the line of duty and, and she passed away or he passed away, we would do the same thing. We would romanticize. Man, they, they went to the gunfire instead of away from it like the rest of us would do. And they gave their life protecting us. And we would, we would romanticize their death and memorialize that, right? We'd have the parade and the plaque and raise the money, right? We do that in our, in our families, I, I talk about my mom and dad all the time. I had a person one time say, I mean, your dad was just like the most incredible, godly, calm, collected, easygoing person that I've ever heard about when you talk about them. And I looked at the person, I said, yeah, I only tell the good stories publicly, right? But even I do it. I, I romanticize someone that I love and I memorialize them and when I can romanticize and memorialize someone who is dead, it's a great thing because I can kind of make them into whoever I want them to be. A dead Jesus is a great Jesus. The idea that he loved me so much that he came to earth for me, that's a, what a wonderful thing. It's true, too. He wanted me to, to, to have freedom from my sin, so he paid the cost of my sin through his death on the cross. Absolutely true. That is wonderful. Died once for all so that all may live. Man, what, a, what an incredible thing. That God loved me so much and that he gave his life for me as willing to pay for my sins. And he, he is memorialized. He created the church so we would remember him. And I love going to church. The music's great. The pastor's sexy. Like, it's just a wonderful thing to, to, go to, to go to church. I love that. He wants us to give our lives to each other the way he gave our life. I love my friends. I love when I'm in trouble, they come running. What a comforting thing to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he helps me. And by the way, he will. He'll help you. There's no downside really to picking up on the teachings of Jesus. You will live a better life if you live the life of service and selflessness and love that Jesus called you to live. You, that's all great. And a, and a dead Jesus is a great Jesus because I can memorialize him and romanticize him and kind of make him into what I want to be. I can participate in his life. I can mimic his life and copy his life and, and it's only going to bring benefit to me. Two out of three ain't bad. Jesus died. I'm in, man. He was buried. Yeah, I gotcha. Sure thing. Two out of three ain't bad. Nobody argues with the death of Jesus. Nobody argues with the burial of Jesus. But you bring the resurrection to the table and you just change the conversation. Because what the resurrection of Jesus does, the resurrection of Jesus causes conflict. It will bring conflict to your life, conflict to the conversation, conflict to the culture. Jesus died. Ah, oh, man, I love, it's so inspiring when good people die for what they believe in. Jesus was buried. Yep, let's memorialize him. We should remember that. He overcame death and raised himself from the dead. Have you lost your mind? Because if Jesus rose again from the dead, that means that he's God. And as God, it means that the rest of his character takes hold. And if the rest of his character takes hold, then he is the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It means that he's not just worthy of being remembered. He is due worship. 
It's not just that, you know, I, I like him. Jesus, Mohammed, like Lincoln, Martin Luther King, like these Gandhi, Mother Teresa, these great, great people. Mm -mm. He's different than all of that because Dr. King and Mother Teresa, they, they wouldn't even receive worship if you tried to give it to them. And you look at their life and you draw the things and you can believe and agree with what they stood for and you probably should, but you wouldn't go and worship them. You wouldn't give your life to them. You would learn from them, but not be defined by them. Why? Because they didn't raise again from the dead. If Jesus rose again from the dead, it means that he is all of who he says he is. It means he is the God who loves you and will be the exact same God who judges you at the end of time. He is the God that illuminates the darkness and gives you truth and is the exact same God who defines that truth and determines whether you have embraced it or not. He's the God that, that by his death created heaven and the wonderfulness of our salvation, our sins being forgiven, and is the same God that at the great white throne of, of judgment will determine whether you're going to go there or depart from him because he actually didn't know you. The same God that loves you and embraces you and helps you is the same God that calls you and defines you and directs you. And it's not that it's fun to worship Jesus. It's that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not a teacher, not a memory, not a religion, not a philosophy. Two out of three ain't bad. But it doesn't mean anything. Lots of good people with insightful things to teach us die. They're all buried. We can go to a lot of their tombs and remember what they taught us. But they're all still in there. And the resurrection shifts it all. The resurrection makes all the claims about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Who are you? Jesus, my word. You're the only way to heaven? Yes. Prove it. All right, I rose again from the dead. There's one name under heaven by which you must be saved. Who are you to be that narrow in your thinking? I'm the guy that raised myself from the dead. There is one source of truth, the word of God, the Bible is what we would call it. All other holy scriptures are false or mimicking of the Bible. The Bible is the only source of truth. Man, that is the most arrogant thing. Where do you get off saying that? Well, I rose again from the dead and wrote the Bible. See? The church of Jesus is the only true church. What about these other ones? Well, they're false churches or false religions. Well, that's the most arrogant. Where do you get off saying that? Well, I'm Lord of creation. I created the church and defined truth and will separate the wheat from the chaff at the end of time. I'm God. I am your friend. I am your buddy. I, I don't, I love comforting you. But two out of three And I am your Lord and your Savior and your definer and your director and your judge and your source of truth. I am the God Almighty. And my resurrection clarifies that, defines that, proves it, see. It's interesting, Jesus goes back to the upper room. He's talking to Thomas, verse 27, chapter 20 of John. So Thomas comes in, right, because he missed the first interaction, so he comes in a week later. And Jesus said to Thomas, he goes, Thomas, put, put your finger here. You know, see my hand. We would say wrist, but put it here. And he said, and put your... Put out your hand and place it in my side. Right there, Thomas. That's where the lance 
when and it's me. And he said, he said, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, Lord, my Lord and God, my risen Savior. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? It's fascinating. Jesus looks at Thomas and says, have you believed? Thomas, quit disbelieving. It's me. I'm eating. I'm drinking. I'm here. You're touching me. We're hanging out. We're talking. You saw me die. I'm, I'm back. I raised myself from the dead. He says, Thomas, he said, are you believing just because you've seen me? And what's fascinating is this. Right here in the middle of the upper room, Jesus is, is just rose again from the dead. He's talking to the disciples. He's breathing out the Holy Spirit for the first time. All this amazing stuff is happening. And in the middle of that process, he stops and he talks about us. You, you are part of the conversation in the upper room. He says, Thomas, are you just believing because you've seen? And then he, Jesus says this. He's talking about us. He says this. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, listen, buddy, there's other people that are coming. And they are not going to have seen all this. You, you, Thomas, you disciples, you 500 people, you got the easy part, actually. Because you watched me die. Nobody wonders if I'm dead. The Romans didn't wonder if I was dead. The Jewish leaders didn't wonder if I was dead. Joseph of Arimathea and the people helping him take my body off the cross weren't wondering if I was dead. When they wrapped me up and mummified me and started the process of allowing my body to decay, they weren't like, hey, leave it a little bit loose in case he's not dead. The women who were coming to the tomb in the morning were, were there to pack my body in spices. They weren't wondering if I was dead. You guys saw me die. You guys handled my body. You guys watched the process, and then you interacted with me as someone who's alive and well back from the dead. You guys are able to walk by sight on this one. There's people coming that are going to be more greatly blessed because they have to accept this by faith. They have, they have not seen and yet have chosen to believe by faith they have chosen to believe that I raise again from the dead faith is this faith is choosing to believe what I cannot and will never fully understand faith is not a spiritual act it's a relational one Faith is something we exercise all the time. If, you've, if you're married, you exercise faith. You're, by faith, you're saying, I'm gonna live the rest of my life with you. If you have a friendship, you exercise friendship on faith. By faith, I'm choosing to believe that you're not gonna like stab me in the back. If you've ever gone into business with somebody, that's a faith step. By faith, I'm gonna choose it. You're not gonna double cross me. If you have a job that you depended on, by faith, when you bought that house, by faith, you're believing that the owners of that company are gonna keep that company open. Faith is not a spiritual act. Faith is a relational act. And Jesus says there's going to be people coming who are going to take what they do every day. They live by faith, but they're going to focus that faith on the spiritual elements of their life. And they're going to choose to believe what they cannot see or define. They're going to choose to trust something that's beyond their purview of sight. And they are going to be the most blessed. These people are going to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, ready? And they're going to believe faith. They're going to believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. By grace they're saved through faith. They're going to know that they can't be good enough. They have to have a spiritual resurrection, not a spiritual improvement. And they are never going to see, but they're going to trust and believe in who I am. Right? Now, I want you to catch this. This is really cool. Ready? So this is verse 29. In verse 29, these are the last things that Jesus says in the book of John. Verse 29, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Jesus is talking about us in verse 29. In verse 30, John breaks away from the narrative of Jesus' resurrection in the upper room. And in verse 30, he breaks away and he doesn't talk about us, he talks to us. 
Verse 29, last thing Jesus says, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Ready? Verse 30, John talks to us. Hey, by the way, guys, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See? John talks to you and says, I, this is the stuff that God had me write down. Not so that you could follow a dead Jesus that makes you feel better and improves your life a little bit. Not so that you could be a religious person and pack your dead soul in the spices of religion so it negates the stench of spiritual death. But so that you could be resurrected. So that you, when you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that step of faith will bring you life in his name. It's not hard to believe that Jesus died. No, nobody will argue about that. You know, Jesus died. I've been telling you he's dead, right? It's not hard to believe Jesus was buried. That just makes sense. Maybe he was buried in a special way because he was a great teacher and they took extra care of his body. Okay. But the resurrection... That's where the conflict is. And it's where the conflict shows up in our own lives. See. Have you believed in the resurrected Jesus for salvation? Because you can be a good person. And what happens if you believe in a dead Jesus? What happens is you'll, you'll, you'll glom on to a couple of his teachings that you're good at. And you'll believe that because you were good at it, a couple of his teachings, then surely good people go to heaven, right? So we all do this. I do this too. There's a couple of Jesus' teachings I'm really good at. Jesus says that we should not commit adultery. I'm really, really good at not committing adultery. I've, I've aced it. I've never committed adultery, Right? Jesus teaches, the Word of God teaches, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I don't know about you guys, but I come to church basically every weekend. I am really good at the assembling of myself together with the body of Christ, right? That's what happens. We find one of Jesus' teachings and we glom onto it because it comes naturally to us or it's a natural point of self-discipline for us. I'm a really generous person. That's wonderful. Well, Jesus said we should be generous. He does. Good. I mean, good job. It'll benefit you. I'm very forgiving. I just let stuff go. That's awesome. I mean, you, you're wired for that. That's great. I mean, some people are really good at that, you know? I, I pray a lot. I'm really good at prayer. I, I, right after I finish my yoga and right before I eat my vegan meal, I always, I always pray, right? That's great. Seriously, yoga and prayer, I don't know about being a vegan, but like the rest of it, you're missing out on some deliciousness, but right, that's great. So you, you have a proclivity to it. It's great. You can follow a dead Jesus and be a better person for sure. There's not a big downside to coming to church. Most people don't tithe anyways. You're in the majority. There's not a big downside to it. Get some friends, get some support. That's very different. I mean, two out of three ain't bad. But if there's no resurrection in your life, if you have not died to yourself and been raised again in Christ, Sin managed is completely different than sin defeated. See? And as we live life, I, I don't need the power of self-improvement in my life. I, I don't know about it. You guys are smart. You're capable people. I am too. If I want to do something, I'll do it. If I don't want to do it, I won't. I'm a grown-up. I don't care anymore what anybody thinks. 
I don't need the power of self-improvement in my life. I need the power of the resurrection in my life. If I could self-improve my marriage and save it, you would have done it by now. If I, if I could self-improve my addictions and overcome them, you would have overcome them by now. You don't like being addicted. If I could self-improve my shattered family and bring it back together and help my kids somehow through self-improvement recover from all the shrapnel of our divorce, we would have done that because we love our children. I don't need a self-improvement. I need a resurrection, something supernatural that's beyond me. Something that would be illustrated by Jesus raising himself from the dead. See? I don't need to follow or learn or talk. I need to be supernaturally altered and changed. I don't need a group of friends to, to hang out with and do good works. You can join the United Way and do that if you want. They're great. But to be a part of the supernatural church of Jesus Christ in which the gates of hell cannot prevail? I don't need a warm memory about my loved one. I need the assurance I'm going to be reunited with them. That works. Two out of three ain't bad, but it doesn't set Jesus apart. Lots of people nailed two out of three. Lots of people we should respect and celebrate. Two out of three. But the resurrection and the belief in the resurrection, see, that's why John wrote what he wrote. So that I can look and say, this is not just a teacher, not just a leader, not just a thinker. That guy, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah, Son of God. When we take a few minutes, I encourage you, even if you're watching online, just to be still for a minute and be still in the room. Just chill for a second. And what if you prayed and talked to God? Maybe it's for salvation, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not resurrected by him. It's a different gig. He's been a good guy and a great help, but not my Savior and Lord. Maybe it's for it's the way you live, right? I, I don't know, and I'm not going to stand here and guess, but maybe you take a few minutes and open up your mind and your heart and give Christ and the Holy Spirit that leeway to convict of sin, to, to show us places that we need to interact with our Messiah and the Son of God in a new, a fresh, a different way, okay? Jesus, help us with this. Holy Spirit, if you would, to, if, if you would be our helper and press into our heart, convict us of sin, show us the fruitless deeds of darkness, bring them under the conviction of the Word of God. In individual ways, God, in the secret places of our heart where we hide, God, would you expose those things and help us to have the courage to surrender them to our Lord, resurrected Savior. And Holy Spirit, through the conviction of sin, through your kindness, would you draw us to repentance for salvation? As, as we sense that conflict in our heart, it's a conflict of love. You're not out to get us, you're out to save us, but there's a decision that has to be made. And so would you help us to surrender and to humble ourselves to you and you alone? In these still moments, God, would you work in those ways? Help us, Jesus, in your name. Amen.